Hey, what's up, folks? Thanks for listening to the Aaron J. Dodson podcast. This is the podcast where I discuss the sacred text of God's written word, and I do my best to help myself and others understand it so that we might keep God's law and so that we might keep it with our whole hearts, observe it with our whole hearts, as the psalmist desired to do in the long ago, Psalm 119, verse 34. In this episode, I want to discuss a most uh, hot topic the subject of marriage, divorce, and remarriage from looking at Matthew chapter 19 carefully. So this is a continuation of the study of the book of Matthew that I've been been publishing on my uh, podcast, Podbean channel, uh, sponsored by the Washington Avenue Church of Christ here in Jonesboro. If you would, join me at Matthew chapter 19, and I'll be reading there in just a moment. And before I do, each time that we've studied the book of Matthew together in this podcast series, I've tried to remind uh, my listeners and myself that Matthew is the gospel account written by a Jew to Jews about a Jew. Matthew is the writer. His Jewish countrymen are the readers. And Jesus Christ is the subject. Matthew's purpose is to present Jesus as the king of the Jews, the long-awaited Messiah. So when we open to Matthew chapter 19, it comes to pass when Jesus has finished these sayings about uh, greatness in the kingdom and forgiveness in the kingdom that I discussed in the last episode of this series. It comes to pass when he had finished those sayings that he departs from Galilee. He comes to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes are following him, and he heals people there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him, and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? As often in Jesus' ministry, the Pharisees, the scribes, and even the Sadducees, they tried to trip Jesus up. They tried to trap him. No doubt there were multiple beliefs about this issue and about this question. The question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? I've read and I've heard that there were some who thought, no, it is not lawful to divorce uh, your wife for any reason. There's only one reason, uncleanness, uh, fornication. And then there were others, another big group of the Jews that thought, uh, you can for any reason. Just put her away. As long as you give her a a bill of divorce, you can put her away. It's okay. So they asked Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Any reason. Testing him in an attempt to trap him. Jesus' response was, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, (coughs) excuse me, let not man separate. So Jesus explains that the answer is no. It is not lawful for a man to put away his wife for any reason. No, that is not God's will. He says, have you not read the Bible? The Bible says that God made the male and female, one for each other. They're to leave their father and their mother. They're to join one another. They're to become one flesh. And they're no longer two. They're one. 
Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So let it be stated here and now that God joins together a husband and wife in marriage. But he does not join together those who are practicing adultery. He does not uh, approve of fornication. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. Marriage is honorable or to be held in honor among all and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. So God does not join two people together in what would be called biblically an adulterous marriage. And I'll talk more about this in just a moment. So the response of the religious leaders initially was, Matthew chapter 19, verse 7. So they say to him, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? He says, here's the reason. Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But there was a problem with that. From the beginning, it was not so. That was not God's desire, nor his design, nor his will from the beginning. Jesus says, and I say to you. So he speaks of one as one with authority, he, the authority of God. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for fornication and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. His disciples said to him, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, all cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. So you may have noticed because you listen to me often that I supplemented the word fornication in Matthew 19, 9. My beloved New King James Version, this is, in my opinion, uh, probably its biggest weakness. It renders the Greek word pornea as sexual immorality. But the Greek word pornea is translated properly, correctly as fornication. And there is a difference between sexual immorality and fornication, though they are closely related. It is sexually immoral to desire uh, a woman that's not your, your spouse. To watch pornography is sexually immoral, but that is not fornication. Fornication uh, is a physical act between two people that do not have the right to be together. Um, it could be defined, a word study of pornea would, would, would give you this idea. Fornication, pornea, is what a person does with a harlot, okay? So it's physical, sexual interaction with sexual organs. I know I'm being very specific, but we've got to be specific because Jesus was specific. He used a word that meant fornication. It means what you do with a harlot. It's not something you merely see or look at. It's something that you do with your body, and with at least one sexual organ. Jesus says, Matthew 19, 9, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for fornication. And in the New King James Version, if you have a center column reference or a footnote, my footnote says fornication on Matthew 19, 9. That's just interesting. I'm only saying that if, 
if you recall that I use the New King James Version or you use it and you've wondered about it. So Jesus says, look, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for fornication and marries another commits adultery. Notice he didn't say, if you divorce your wife, you've committed adultery. He said, if you divorce your wife except for this reason, this one reason, and marry another. So adultery is not um, experienced. Adultery has not been practiced until a person remarries for any reason besides the one exception, the one reason, fornication. And whoever marries her who is divorced, who is so put away, commits adultery. That's, that's not very complicated at all. But there are many false ideas that abound about the matter of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Uh, what it takes to understand this is an honest heart, uh, a willingness to accept and to apply what it teaches. Um, all marriages are either joined by God or they are not joined by God. And if you're wondering, well, what marriages would be the ones joined by God and, and the ones that are not? Well, let's start with the ones that are not. The ones that are not uh, joined by God are the ones that are sinful in this sight. God does not approve of adulterous marriages because he just said in Matthew 19, 9, if you divorce your spouse except for this one reason and you marry somebody else, you're committing adultery. So God did not join that. You may have a piece of paper from the government, from the state, from the county, from whoever that says two people are married. But in the eyes of God, according to God's law, if a man puts away um, his first spouse and that first spouse is her first spouse, you got two people that's never been married before and they marry each other and the woman burns the biscuits and the man puts her away because she burned the biscuits for breakfast. If he marries somebody else, he is committing adultery. And that subsequent marriage is no scriptural God-joined marriage in the eyes of God. It's an adulterous marriage. It's sinful. An adulterous marriage, then, is a marriage that is not joined by God. The idea of joined is approved, approved by God. Because Jesus, in speaking of two people that are God joined, he said, what God has joined, let not man separate. Don't try to tear apart what God has put together. Now, there are three types of God joined marriages. First, there are those who have never been married and they marry one another. So you have a man and a woman because Jesus said that marriage is when a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. Marriage is not when two men join one another. God doesn't join that. Man does. Marriage in the eyes of God is not when two women join together and attempt to be married. No matter how many pieces of paper they have from the government, no matter, no matter, how, no matter how many clicks on Facebook or, or any other social media outlet, no matter how many times people say, love is love, love is love, love is love, that's irrelevant when it comes to God's approval or God's disapproval. Jesus Christ, the master teacher, God in the flesh, said that marriage is when a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. 
a male and female, Matthew 19, verse 4. So the three types of God-joined marriages, first, those who have never been married and who marry a scriptural candidate. So you, let's say, for example, you've got uh, a man and a woman who have never been married to anyone. <coughs> and that man and woman marry each other. That's a God-joined marriage. That leads me to this conclusion. Every person has the right, at least once, to a God-joined marriage. Now, there is a category of people who forfeit that privilege, and we'll look at that in just a moment. Second, another type of God-joined marriage. Those who put away their God-joined spouse because their spouse committed fornication. And they marry a scriptural candidate. So, let's use the illustration again. A man and a woman who've never been married. They marry each other. The man commits fornication. He has sexual activity with another woman or a man or a dog for that matter. That's considered in bestiality, which is pornea, by the way. You have a man and a woman who are God-joined. The man makes bad decisions. He chooses to go have sexual relations with someone else. The woman puts him away and is alleviated of that responsibility and that law by God and can marry a scriptural candidate, another man who has either never been married before or is single for the same reason she is because he put away his first spouse because she committed fornication, as in the first scenario. Again, that hinges upon the one exception, except it be for fornication. The third type of God-joined marriage, <coughs> excuse me, those whose God-joined spouse died and the living spouse remarries a scriptural candidate. Those are the three types of God-joined marriages. You say, where did you get that? Matthew 19. When Jesus says, what God has joined together, let not man separate. He's speaking of two people that have the right in the eyes of God to be married to each other. Because God does not marry adulterers. Whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. They do not have the approval of God to practice such marriages. And we know from Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 4, that if a man and woman who've never been married before marry each other, and the woman dies, the man is free to marry another person a scriptural candidate, another woman who is scripturally available. She has the approval from God to marry. That would eliminate him from marrying a woman who's been put away for committing fornication. Because Matthew 19, 9 says, and whoever marries her who is divorced, and in this case it's the person that was put away for fornication, is committing adultery, Jesus said. So there are three types of God-joined marriages. Those who've never been married and who marry a scriptural candidate. 
those who put away their God-joined spouse because their spouse committed fornication and they marry a scriptural candidate. And three, those whose God-joined spouse died and the living spouse remains, or excuse me, remarries a scriptural candidate. I want to go deeper into this. It's not only important to understand the three types of God-joined marriages, but also to expose the error that surrounds marriage, divorce, and remarriage. False ideas. First, the first false idea that I want to address in this podcast episode is the false idea that the only basis for someone entering into a second marriage is the death of their spouse. That's simply not true. This idea, this view, this theory must be rejected because of what Jesus said in Matthew 19, 9. There is the reason for fornication to enter into a second marriage. So it's false to say that the only basis for someone entering into a second marriage is the death of their spouse. That is not the only basis for someone entering a second marriage. It's also if that person's spouse committed fornication. Now, here's where it gets into a mess. If a man and woman both commit fornication, there's no biblical authority for them to be loosed. They're both still bound. Because Matthew 19, 9 implies an innocent party, one who has not committed fornication. (coughs) So let's take a man and a woman who's never been married before, They marry each other, and the man commits fornication, and so does the woman. The man steps out on her, and the woman steps out on him. Well, neither of them are free to put the other way and remarry. Yes, death ends marriage, but that's not the only basis for someone entering into a second marriage. It's also, the other reason is also, is I can't even English here. I apologize. The other reason that's acceptable in the sight of God is if a person puts their spouse away who's committed fornication. False idea number two. Divorce and remarriage for any cause is okay because God wants you to be happy. This view fails to acknowledge that God created marriage and has divine rules for marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Paul said, if and when a wife departs, divorces, as the same Greek word, from her husband, she is to remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11. It is not okay to do what makes you happy mentality. There are rules for marriage, divorce, and remarriage. We are not to separate what God joined, Matthew 19, 6. Only God can separate what he joined. And the only two reasons he gives for that marriage bond to be dissolved and another contract entered into is for the innocent person whose spouse committed fornication or if a person's spouse dies. Divorcing and remarrying for any reason because God wants me to be happy is a lie from Satan. Number three, another false idea. Fornication is a legitimate cause for divorce and remarriage and allows both parties, 
the one guilty of fornication and the one who is not guilty of fornication, to remarry. This view often regards marriage as a contract and claims both parties are free to remarry once that covenant is broken. The problem with that is that reasoning contradicts Matthew 19.9. If the person who committed fornication was put away by the one who didn't, the one who committed fornication did not put the other away for fornication. Thus, they do not have the right to remarry. It's not complicated. You just got to think about it for a second. Think about it. If the person that committed fornication was put away by the one who didn't, then the one who committed fornication did not put the other away for fornication. So they don't have the right to remarry. Any subsequent marriage they enter in is committing adultery, as Jesus said, Matthew 19, 9. Number four, the fourth false idea I want to address. If a spouse is forsaken by his or her mate, he or she has the right to divorce and remarry. Based on the idea of Paul's words, not under bondage. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15. This is one that is touted by many members of the Church of Christ, and it's wrong, wrong, wrong. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15, and we'll begin with verse 10. Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife, but to the rest I, not the Lord, say, If any brother has a wife who does not believe, and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the, by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy." But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? So Paul, in this context, is describing a Christian being loyal to Jesus, according to verse 26, during persecution. I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Don't seek a wife, etc. Paul is describing a situation where a Christian is being loyal to Christ during hardship and a non-believer, a non-Christian spouse demands Divorce demands to leave. And so the unbeliever's idea, his position or her position is, leave the Lord and leave this persecution. <coughs> Excuse me. The phrase not under bondage is actually expressed in the negative perfect tense in the Greek text. And it describes something that was never true. Now, here's the way a lot of people look at this. They think that not under bondage describes the marriage bond. You're not under bondage. You're not bound to be married to them. That, that's, that's what a lot of people say it is. If not under bondage describes the marriage bond, then Paul is saying they were never married because the Greek text is describing something that was never true. It's a negated perfect tense. Paul is saying they were never under bondage. But they were married. That's what this is dealing with. 
Look at the passage again. 1 Corinthians 7, 15, please. But if the unbeliever departs, see, they, they have been married. Let him depart. All right? So, so these are two people that are married. But then one is demanding to leave. You see, marriage in Scripture is never spoken of as bondage. So what does not under bondage mean? If, it, if he's not referring to marriage, because they were never under this kind of bondage, but yet they were married, so he's not talking about marriage. They are married. They have been married. One seeks to not be married now. What does not under bondage mean? It means that a Christian has never been under obligation to surrender. Never, never, never been under obligation to surrender his or her commitment to God for the sake of maintaining that marriage. So if a man and a woman who've never been married before marry one another, one is a Christian, one is not. And the one that is not a Christian demands that they surrender their uh, faithfulness to Christ in any way. And if that person, the Christian spouse, doesn't surrender their commitment to Christ, then the non-believer says, I'm leaving. Well, the Christian is never, has never, never, ever will be under bondage to surrender their commitment to Christ for the sake of maintaining that marriage. And I, I could wish that every person that heard this would get this and keep it and not walk away from it. Paul is not saying that if you're married to a non-Christian and you're a Christian, that if they want to leave you, you can let them leave and then you can remarry. There is nothing in the passage about being remarried. Although popular preachers and teachers and denominational preachers even will try to argue that any time a marriage is no longer together, it's okay uh, to remarry because the marriage was dissolved. If the unbeliever departs and the marriage is dissolved, that is not true. No matter how much two people may try to dissolve their marriage, they may get a piece of paper from the government, they may pay $10,000 for a divorce, whatever. Only God joins a scriptural marriage and only God can separate it. And God says the only way it can be separated is if an innocent spouse puts away their fornicating spouse and marries another candidate that has the right to be married. I mean, that I, I know that's wordy, folks, but that's what Matthew 19, 9 teaches. Let me read it again. Listen to it. I'm going to read it very slow, and I want us to think on it just in case, you know, I have spoken too quickly or I've mixed my words around in any way. Jesus said, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for fornication and marries another commits adultery commits present tense the greek means continues it's not just a one-time act folks and whoever marries her who is divorced commits keeps on committing adultery all right let's read it once again and leave out the exception Jesus said, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. Okay, so anyone that divorces their God-joined spouse and they marry another, they are committing adultery unless, unless they put away their first spouse because that first spouse committed fornication. All right. 
1 Corinthians 7, verse 15, does not alter Matthew 19 in any shape, form, or fashion. Paul's not coming along and saying, oh, except for this one reason and another reason, if your non-Christian spouse abandons you, then you can remarry. No, he didn't say that. Listen, if that non-Christian spouse abandons you and commits fornication, you're free to put them away. God will release you and you can re-remarry. Yeah. But not under bondage language, is not speaking about marriage. It's not saying that if your spouse is not a Christian, you can divorce them and remarry because you're not bound to that marriage anymore. That is not the case. That is not what he's speaking about. He's saying a Christian is never, (coughs) excuse me, under obligation to surrender their commitment to Christ for the sake of keeping their marriage. Let's read it one more time. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. What? They're not required to maintain that marriage. They can't if the other demands to depart, the the unbeliever. But God has called us to peace. (coughs) Excuse me. So, dear brother, dear sister in Christ, If your non-believing, your non-Christian spouse has abandoned you, you do not have to reconcile with them to go to heaven. You're to be at peace. You're not in bondage. You're not in obligation to keep that marriage in order to go to heaven. But you are taught to remain celibate. To not remarry unless that non-believing spouse commits fornication. If they commit fornication, then you are loosed. You can put them away and marry another. That's number four on the misconceptions. Let's, uh, Let's consider a couple more quickly. Number five, false idea. Some think what the Bible says about marriage, divorce, and remarriage only applies to Christians. So, two people that are not Christians, they've never been baptized into Christ for their mission of sins, they can divorce and remarry a hundred times. But once they become a Christian, then and only then does this rule of Matthew 19.9 apply to them. That is not true. Jesus' statement, number one, was made before the New Covenant. Number two, it continues into the New Covenant because his teachings were for the New Covenant. Matthew 28.20, teach whatever he taught, the New Covenant. But furthermore, Jesus' words were spoken, whoever, whoever. He didn't say believer or non-believer. He said whoever. That's a broad word. The idea that the Bible, what the Bible, Matthew 19.9, I'm going to be more specific. The idea that Matthew 19.9 only applies to a Christian This idea contradicts how some of the Corinthians were adulterers prior to becoming Christians. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. How were they adulterers? Let's just consider that. 1 Corinthians 6, 
9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers. These are people who have entered into an ungodly marriage, a marriage that is not God-joined. They're committing adultery. These will not inherit the kingdom of God, verse 10. How are they adulterers if the rule that God preaches through Matthew 19, 9 does not apply to them until they become a Christian? Because this passage says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. He's speaking of what have, the sins they committed before becoming a Christian. Well, if the rules of marriage, divorce, and remarriage do not apply to them because they're not Christians yet, then they weren't adulterers. They weren't committing sin of adultery, but they were. If what Jesus said in Matthew 19, 9 only applies to Christians, how were the, how were the Corinthians guilty of such sin prior to becoming Christians? The answer is, again, Matthew 19, 9, whoever. And then Luke 16, 18, Luke's account says, everyone who does this. That demonstrates God's law about marriage, divorce, and remarriage apply to all people. doesn't matter if you're a Buddhist, a Muslim, if you're black, white, short, tall, believer, non-believer, whatever. All those things are irrelevant as it pertains to God's law applying to you. This standard applies to all people. The last idea, and this is very common, and I'm going to address, this is technically number six, false idea. The false idea is baptism washes away all sins associated with marriage and divorce. So those who have violated what the Bible says about the subject can stay married to their current partner with God's approval. <coughs> the answer is when a penitent believer is baptized for the forgiveness of sins in the name of Christ, their sins are washed away, Acts 2.38, Acts 22.16. But what is not true is that baptism changes something that's sinful into something that's godly. Baptism does not do that. Baptism does not change a sinful behavior, a sinful lifestyle, a sinful action into a godly action, a godly behavior, a godly state. Behavior that is called sinful prior to being baptized, like adultery, fornication, lying, murder, etc. That behavior, all of those, every wicked behavior, continues to be sinful after baptism and forgiveness. Repentance requires that we change our mind. We acknowledge that our life and our behavior is wrong. And... As Paul preached, Acts 26, 20, we must not only repent and turn to God, be baptized, but we're to do works befitting repentance. <clears throat> That's Acts 26, 20. After repentance and baptism, the gospel requires that we do works befitting repentance. Real quick, I'm going to look up my with my trusty, rusty e-sword, as Tony Brewer likes to say. Acts 26, 20, and I want to read this passage for you in this interesting version called the International 
Standard Version, not the NIV, the International Standard Version, to repent, turn to God, this is Acts 26, 20, and perform deeds that are consistent with such repentance. So if a person changed their mind, their heart about their sinful behavior and realized it was wrong and said, I'm not living for Satan and sin and self anymore, I'm going to live for the Lord, then their deeds, their actions, their behaviors are to be consistent with that. That means we must cease practicing sin. We cannot continue in sin that grace may abound, Romans 6, 1 and 2. We're to reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to God, Romans 6, 11. We're to not let sin reign in our mortal body, Romans 6, 12. All right. Truly repentance and works befitting repentance requires that we cease this sinful behavior. And that includes unscriptural marriages. Someone says, but that's hard. That's too hard. Or I don't like that. Or that means busting up a family with children. No matter what argument a person may make, no matter how difficult the consequences of sin, it does not change what God has said or what God requires. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm going to drop out. I got a call coming in. God bless, and I'll catch you next time. Well, I dropped off, and I'm going to see if I can come back. I don't know how weird that sounds on the recording. I've never done it before. But I, got a, I had a call there from one of my elders. I wanted to catch it. So I've covered six false ideas that are very common regarding marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And, you know, the truth is God cares about every person. He has one will for every person. For all people, it's found in Matthew 19.9 regarding this subject. And he will bless all who in faith will obey the instructions that Jesus gave, even if the situation's difficult. And I want anyone that hears this, through, you know, through the word of God, I'm calling upon all congregations of God's people to not only teach and uphold these things, but to support people who choose to quit practicing adultery. Help these people out of these difficult situations, whether it be finances, whether it be a house, whether it be emotional support, counseling. God does not want us to practice sin. And the church has a responsibility in helping bear their burdens of the burdens of their brothers, (coughs) excuse me, and their sisters in Christ. Well, that's all I've got to say, okay? Thanks for listening to the Aaron J. Dodson podcast. I want to mention again that I'm thankful it's brought to you by the Washington Avenue Church of Christ in Jonesboro, Arkansas. If you're ever in Northeast Arkansas, you're invited, especially if you're in Jonesboro, you're invited to come and attend our services. We have services on Sundays, Bible class at 9 a.m., worship at 10 a.m. and 5 p.m. And Wednesday night, we have Bible class at 7 p.m. Our Bible classes on Sunday morning and Wednesday nights are for all ages. We have teachers for all ages. So you're invited to come. Bring your children. You're invited to be with us. Thank you so much for listening. God bless, and I'll catch you next time.